What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. On This Week in FCPA, episode 218, Mike Volkov tells us how world acceptance was bribed with bags of cash. Lawyers from Deba Voice and Plimpton share implications from the end of Privacy Shield. Kyle Brosser tells us how the NRA shot itself in the foot over non-compliance. Jeff Kaplan and Rebecca Walker explain how we can use lessons learned. Dick Casson asks, are agents ever legal under the FCPA? Matt Kelly writes about applying 2020 updates to antitrust compliance. Tom explains what is a metrics inventory and why do you need one? And Kevin LaCroix shows us how follow-on corruption litigation is expensive. This month on The Compliance Life, Tom is joined by Lewis Sapperman, and we check in on the Compliance and Coronavirus podcast, and Tom continues with the August edition of 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. This month, he focuses on the role of the board in compliance. Please join us for all this and more on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 218 for the week ending, August 14, 2020, the Bags of Cash edition. As Jay and I brave the surge in COVID cases by staying safe at home and staying safe when we leave the confines of our homes, we look back at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. Jay, what say you? I say, I wish I had a bag of cash showing up on my doorstep. What's the story? So the story is World Acceptance Corporation, which settled FCPA charges recently for $21.7 million. Uh, Mike Volkoff tells the sordid tale of uh, this company who uh, is a, uh, a lending company. They had a Mexican subsidiary, which had two business lines, consumer loans, and small loans to state and federal uh, employees of the government of Mexico. Uh, the, this particular service line also was able to convince the Mexican government to take direct um, deductions of the loan payments from the paychecks of the government employees. So it was a, a pretty uh, low-risk proposition. However, to get these uh, <clears throat> low-risk propositions in place, uh, they literally paid uh, millions of dollars in bribes to Mexican government employees um, to set this up. Interestingly, the company couldn't even say who the bribes were paid to because of the $4.1 billion, excuse me, million in bribery payments. Um, 1.5 was paid to government officials, 580000 to union officials, and 480000 paid to third parties who transmitted funds to the government and union officials. But because of uh, a lack of accurate bookkeeping or appropriate bookkeeping at WAC, it remains unclear how the other $1.5 was paid. 
And in a very, uh, I thought, uh, old school uh, approach, Jay, they literally took bags of cash across uh, the border and uh, paid the bribes in bags of cash. So no teddy bears. So uh, showing that once again, you can go old school uh, and still get into FCPA trouble. Uh, You don't have to even do it high tech. So uh, really interesting um, FCPA enforcement action just to show showing you that some companies uh, still don't get it because this occurred from uh, December 2010 to June 2017. Next up, uh, we have a story coming to us from the Compliance and Enforcement blog from NYU School of Law. We've got a group of attorneys from Deba Voice and Plimpton, and they're taking a look at Schrems 2 and want to know where are we now. Uh, in previous blogs, uh, the CJEU has invalidated the EU and U.S. privacy, or for some of the folks out there, privacy shield for cross-border transfers of personal data from the EU to the U.S., and this casts significant doubt over whether companies can continue to use the European Commission-approved standard contractual clauses, which we will abbreviate going forward as SCC, to transfer EU personal data to the U.S. or other jurisdictions. Over the past two weeks, we've seen updates and comments from a number of European Data Protection Supervisory Authorities, DPAs, as regulars, privacy professionals, and companies come to terms with the implication of the Schrems 2 decision. Basically, at the present, there is no complete guarantee that any of the mechanisms for transferring personal data from the EU to the U.S. are compliant with GDPR. There might be outside circumstances where exemptions apply, such as explicit consent or where transfers are necessary for the establishment, exercise, or defense of legal claims for performance of a contract with data subject. The safest and most conservative course, likely impractical for many organizations, is to shut down transatlantic transfers and repatriate data back to the EU. Companies may take some comfort from the fact that the Schrems litigation aside, there have been relatively few examples of enforcement actions or litigation related to the data export violations. Further, there is in practice some safety in being amongst the very large numbers of companies that use SCCs other than those operating in higher profile industries such as social media. Here's here's 10 quick points on where we stand. Number one, there is no formal grace period for the users of the Privacy Shield. The European Data Protection Board, the highly influential collective of representatives from the EU, DPAs, confirmed this position of the court in a fact published on July 24th of this year. Number two, but participating organizations still need to comply with their Privacy Shield obligations. Number three, the impact of Schrems 2 decision is not confined to the Privacy Shield and SCCs. Four, the views of the DPAs on the continued use of SCCs may be diverging. This means that the practical enforcement risk arising from relying on them may be greater or lesser depending on which company's DPA is the most relevant. Five, users of SCCs have to assess and, if possible, mitigate the data protection risks posed by laws of jurisdictions where they are transferring data. Six, there is a lack of clarity on what additional safeguards may be sufficient, but additional use of encryption currently appears to be the best bet. 
Seven, DPAs may take independent action. The DPAs can suspend or prohibit data transfers made on an unlawful basis or issue fines. Eight, the SCCs are in the process of being modernized. The European Commission indicated in its June 2020 report on the evaluation and review of GDPR that it's working on a comprehensive modernization of the currently available sets of SCCSs to update them in light of the GDPR requirements. Nine, controllers are also responsible for data transfers of processors. And 10, some DPAs expect data transferred on the basis of Privacy Shield to be returned. One significant point of divergence between DPAs surrounds what to do with data previously transferred on the basis of Privacy Shield. While most DPAs have not yet taken the same approach, at least publicly, companies may want to consider which DPAs are the most relevant for their operations and familiarize themselves with their specific guidance. So, Jay, uh, we had a very interesting article from Kyle Brasser over at Compliance Week where Kyle looked at the New York Attorney General's suit against the NRA from the compliance perspective. And it was, I thought, a really interesting approach uh, for several reasons. One, it showed the complete lack of any culture of compliance, really no surprise there, but no no really structure of compliance. So it starts off by noting that when the organization found itself under review by the New York Attorney General's office, they did uh, attempted to do a top-down compliance review. This was back in late 2018. But they said that because of, and this is the NRA doing a top-down compliance review, that because of asking questions, it uh, upset vendors and other third parties who the NRA was asking for additional documentation and transparency from, and they got mad at the NRA and hurt their feelings. So that, I thought, was a really interesting way when you uh, try to do a risk assessment slash review slash audit and you hurt the feelings of your third parties. But it's really more than that. It's a complete paucity of any uh, type of compliance program in the organization. Uh, No chief compliance officer, uh, no internal audit. The uh, audit committee uh, chair uh, actually left an audit committee meeting when um, whistleblower information was brought forward. it really shows that there was no oversight and there was no transparency. So uh, simply uh, because of this information really will build the case for the New York AG. But once again, very interesting to look at this from the uh, compliance function, compliance structure perspective. So next up, we have an article coming to us from Corporate Compliance Insights. It's called Lessons Learned About Lessons Learned, and this comes to us from our friends Jeff Kaplan and Rebecca Walker from the eponymous law firm Kaplan & Walker. Those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it, but what exactly of the past should be recalled? The need to explore violations of law and policy in an effort to prevent future similar violations is an important aspect of a robust compliance and ethics program. The DOJ recently revised evaluation of corporate compliance programs, the evaluation guidance, provides some important guidance regarding remedial efforts. First, 
prosecutors may credit the quality and effectiveness of a risk-based compliance program that devotes appropriate attention and resources to high-risk transactions. Even if it fails to prevent an infraction, prosecutors should therefore consider as an indicator of risk tailoring revisions to corporate compliance programs in light of lessons learned. This can be a potentially powerful carrot for those companies that undergo such a lessons learned analysis, and it's also likely to be a powerful stick for those who do not. Indeed, the failure to apply a lessons learned approach to an act of wrongdoing followed by a subsequent similar act may make the original transgression appear to be more purposeful than it otherwise would. Second, The evaluation guidance instructs prosecutors to ask the following question in evaluating the risk assessment of their programs. Does the company have a process for tracking and incorporating into its periodic risk assessment lessons, um, risk assessment lessons learned either from the company's own prior issues or from those of other companies operating in the same industry? Particularly important is the part of the evaluation guidance is the notion of having a true process as opposed to an informal practice for gathering, tracking, and utilizing lessons learned. Third, the evaluation guidance also provides an pertinent part that prosecutors should ask the following about training. Has the training addressed lessons learned from prior incidents? Moreover, training has is perhaps the best way to reach the greatest number of employees with the substance of a lesson being learned. Note that this is not easy to do over the long haul, but the authors can think of at least one company that managed to keep their lessons learned communications robust for more than 20 years after a significant criminal offense. Fourth, in the section on continuous improvement and periodic testing, in evaluating whether a particular compliance program works in practice, Prosecutors should consider revisions to the corporate compliance programs in light of lesson learned. This section also provides that they should ask, does the company review and adapt its compliance program based upon lessons learned from its own misconduct? Here, too, the challenge for some companies is less a matter of what they are actually doing in practice and more of creating and documenting. I see your ears perking up, Tom. Document, document, document among appropriate procedures. This includes incorporating the importance of considering remedial measures into investigation guidelines and training. Looking beyond specific expectations set forth in the evaluation guidance is the issue of what might be called a cultural, a culture of lessons learned. More importantly, the culture of lessons learned is independent, is dependent on the particular senior managers at an organization. It is they who must establish an understanding that lessons learned should be seen as valuable company assets. Perhaps most important, the lessons learned from senior management should go beyond the mechanics of the events in questions and explore potential underlying cultural causes. These include behavioral ethics knowledge that we are not as ethical as we think and the dangers of undue business pressure and the need for sufficient accountability. So it's a thought-provoking article, and we link to it in the show notes. Jay, next up, we had an interesting article from Dick Casson, and he starts with the question, are agents ever legal under the FCPA? He is not arguing that the FCPA itself bans agents. What he does posit is the following. Obviously, it's, at least since you and I have been in this area, of law, Jay, 90% of all cases involve third parties. 
uh, either funneling bribes or recipients of bribes or uh, directly involved in the nefarious conduct, which leads to FCPA violations. And his question is, can uh, issuers, uh, companies who issue stock uh, and are subject to the internal controls provisions, uh, ever meet the requirement if they use intermediaries? Or is the use of an agent, which necessarily involves some loss of control, always non-compliant with management's legal duty to provide reasonable assurances the transactions are accurately recorded and lawful? So he really comes about it uh, uh, at it at a little bit indirect direction, which is that can you always be assured that people outside your control are always going to follow the law? And um, the answer to that, of course, is no. You can't ever do that uh, any more than I can uh, ever be assured uh, that you're always going to follow the law and you can ever be assured that I'm always going to follow the law. You probably can be assured that you will make a decision that for yourself, but really that's it. So I'm um, not quite sure why he raised this, uh, perhaps just to, to put a question out there. Uh, what I think, Jay, is uh, on the answer to his question that you may make reason, you can take reasonable uh, steps to have uh, reasonable assurances that your agents, intermediaries, and third parties are going to uh, follow the law. But you have to uh, do more than that. Uh, you have to do more than due diligence. You have to manage that relationship after the contract is signed. And when you manage that relationship, hopefully you will both uh, prevent and, if something does happen, detect it. Uh, but uh, I think the FCPA internal control provisions um, uh, was uh, requires uh, a thought, well-thought-out set of controls that you robustly follow. So, uh, interesting article. I uh, Once again, he's not saying that agents are illegal, but it asks the questions under internal controls. So, uh, interesting, thought-provoking article by Dick Casson, and uh, it's, uh, I think, good to, to ask these questions, Jay, just uh, so you have to, to think through them um, in either a debate forum or just to yourself. Uh, next up, we have something from the Navix Global Risk and Compliance Matters blog, and it's our good friend Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance. Uh, Matt decides to take a look at three ways to apply the new 2020 Department of Justice guidelines to antitrust compliance. The Justice Department gave compliance officers a significant piece of guidance in June with its latest update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. The guidance begs the fundamental question, is the compliance program adequately resourced and empowered to function? In practical terms, do you have the budget as a compliance officer and the tools and authority to put your program into practice? If your answer is no, you're in serious trouble. Matt's mind immediately raced to another piece of guidance the Justice Department published last year about antitrust compliance programs specifically. So how does the latest guidance, emphasizing resources, autonomy, and authority, intersect with these issues raised by the DOJ's antitrust document? Clearly, both pieces of guidance share a lot of the Justice Department DNA. They raise the same points about risk assessment, training, corporate culture, and so forth, all descending from their common ancestor, the U.S. Sentencing Guideline. 
Most corporate compliance officers, however, look at their program through an FCPA lens. It's just a very different from the antitrust world. Antitrust involves more types of misconduct from boycotts to bid rigging to price gouging, and it can sweep up more companies, including U.S.-only businesses. Until the antitrust guidance came along in 2019, a company settling antitrust charges wouldn't receive any credit for, re- for having an antitrust compliance program. So companies now have more incentive to build an effective antitrust program. How does that imperative fit into the adequately resourced and empowered to function exhortation? So here are three fundamental ways to test your DOJ antitrust compliance. Number one, where and how do you treat antitrust compliance? Will it be the purview of the legal function or will it be compliance? People can make spirited arguments for either side. Antitrust law is complex, and especially as one wanders into the matters of market dominance and consent decrees, that might involve divesting assets. On the other hand, a lot of antitrust misconduct revolves around employees and not following procedures or procedure and emphasizing the significance of doing so is something compliance team have done for years. Second, do your policies and training focus on preventing antitrust violations? Are they risk-based? A lot of antitrust misconduct is small-bore employee misbehavior. It's employees plotting with competitors at business conferences to carve up lucrative markets. None of this is as glamorous as a multi-billion dollar merger that drags two corporate giants before a regulatory review. And the third way to look at this is, are you the compliance officer reaching the right level of executives? Business conduct related to antitrust can be fundamentally different from business conduct related to corruption, accounting fraud, or secretive data collection practices. Antitrust issues can often veer into strategic questions without readily apparent answers. Compliance officers need to be sure that if they're reaching the right level executive who might be exploring M&A deals or strategic growth plans up to and including the CEO. We could say this starts with a risk management assess with a risk assessment and what type of antitrust conduct is your firm likely to experience? Then ask which executives in the enterprise play an oversight role to help prevent misconduct. And finally, do I have the authority to raise compliance issues with them, especially if it means potentially thwarting some project they want to execute? Again, that shouldn't be a novel process for veteran compliance officers who have been forcing their way into these conversations about anti-corruption for years. But we're starting with a different issue, so you may end up with a different list of names. However, your basis of objective, getting seen and getting heard, remains the same. I wrote a blog post this week that I wanted to highlight because I think it's extraordinarily significant, and I'm going to be taking a look at this issue and writing about it moving forward. That is on um, creating an inventory of metrics for your compliance program. Uh, one of the podcast series I ran this week was jointly sponsored by Conversant and Stone Turn. And as part of that podcast series, I interviewed Michelle Edwards, a partner at Stone Turn. And she used the phrase I had not heard before about creating an inventory of metrics. She's a CPA by professional training. So she comes at things a little bit different angle than a lawyer, uh, obviously numbers oriented and uh, process oriented. And 
She took a look at the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs and the mandate that data be utilized more robustly by compliance officers and opined that you should first create an inventory of metrics in order to monitor and improve a compliance program. And although this sounds uh, perhaps uh, like a difficult assignment, as Michelle kind of walked me through her thought process, it's take a look at all the requirements laid out in the evaluation and then uh, find a a metric to measure it by. And she uh, talked about third parties, whether you follow the five-step process and life cycle management of third parties. She talked about training. She talked about discipline incentives in a wide variety of ways. So uh, for every compliance practitioner, if you're struggling with uh, what data should I be looking at, well, go through the guidance or rather the evaluation update and take a look at what the DOJ uh, thinks you should be looking at. So uh, Michelle and I are going to be writing more about this over the next uh, weeks and months. I'm really intrigued by, uh, I was very intrigued by her comments and her uh, phrasing and we're creating an inventory of metrics. So uh, this is something I'm going to be writing and thinking about, and hopefully that it will be useful for the compliance professional going forward. So next up, Tom, um, we got a visit from our friend Kevin LaCroix at his DNO diary, Directors and Officers, and he's taking a look at corruption allegations that lead to serious follow-on security suits. First matter he's looking at is Airbus, Corruption and bribery enforcement actions and criminal prosecutions have long been a source of follow-on civil actions, including in particular securities class actions lawsuits. Two recent securities class action lawsuits underscore the significance of this follow-on security suit filing phenomenon. First, we look at the Airbus lawsuit. The first of two recent security class actions lawsuits involves the European aerospace firm Airbus SE. The complaint names as defendants the company itself, as well as certain of its directors and officers. The complaint purports to be filed on behalf of investors who purchased Airbus securities during the period of February 24, 2016 and July 30, 2020. The Airbus complaint refers to a series of anti-corruption investigations involving the company, going all the way back to the first of the investigations reported based on an August 2012 announcement by the Serious Fraud Office. The next event in the series of anti-corruption revelations involves Airbus, to which the recently filed securities complaint refers is August 8, 2016. And then on January 31st, French prosecutors got joined the fund, and Airbus had they announced that Airbus had agreed to a deal with U.S., U.K., and French prosecutors to settle bribery and export control violations for a total of $4 billion with a B dollars. The securities complaint alleges, based on this series of events, that the defendants made false and or misleading statements or failed to disclose that Airbus's policies and procedures were insufficient to ensure the company's compliance with relative anti-compliance law. The complaint further alleges that as a result of the defendant's wrongful acts and emissions and the precipitous decline in the market value of the company's securities, plaintiff and other class members suffered significant losses and damage. Next up is the first energy complaint, which we spoke about, first of all, a couple of weeks ago on this podcast. 
This securities class action suit is filed in the Southern District of Ohio and was filed on July 28th of this year. It relates to the facts and circumstances surrounding the July 21st, 2020 arrest of Ohio Republican House Speaker Larry Householder and four others, including a first energy lobbyist and a former Republican Party chair in connection with the $60 billion racketeering and bribery scheme. The securities lawsuit complaint alleges that the criminal complaint filed in connection with the arrest details a stunning pay-to-play scheme in which First Energy brazenly corrupted every facet of the legislative process in order to ensure the passage of House Bill HB6. The securities complaint quotes prosecutors as saying that the criminal case involved the largest bribery money laundering scheme in Ohio's history, and the securities complaint alleges that First Energy's share price fell 45% on the news of the arrest. As these cases demonstrate, civil action filed in the wake of bribery and corruption allegations can be serious matters involving serious allegations. Prior cases show that these kinds of follow-on cases can involve significant settlements as well. The most noteworthy example of this is the massive $3 billion with the B settlement with Petrobras securities based on their Brazilian bribery allegations. One of the obvious reasons these cases can be so serious and involve such serious allegations is that civil action plaintiff's attorney can rely on and borrow from the allegations that prosecutors and enforcement authorities have previously raised and developed. As a result, the complaints filed in these kinds of follow-on civil action enforcement actions are more detailed than is often the case with initial security class action complaints. The first energy complaint is particularly noteworthy, not only for the egregious allegations involved, but also for the fact that it involves a domestic U.S. company and the underlying allegations involve company activities in the U.S. The first energy action underscores the fact that corruption risk is not only a concern for foreign companies, but it is not a risk just limited outside the U.S. The problem with these kinds of cases from a DNO underwriting perspective is that they're very hard to underwrite against. Corrupt activities are by definition conducted in a way that the wrongdoers hope will escape detection. So there is little chance that a DNO underwriter could, using traditional tools, hope to select away from companies engaged in corrupt activities. So, Jay, I had uh, some really good podcasts this week up on the Compliance Podcast Network. We uh, had uh, episode two of my four-part conversation with Lewis Sapperman on the Compliance Life. Uh, We looked at his, uh, or rather, what he thought are some of the qualities for a successful CCO on the Compliance and Coronavirus podcast. This week, we had our good friend and colleague John Fanning discussing the increased need for due diligence in the era of COVID-19. Jed Gardner on a really interesting idea of not disaster recovery, not business continuity, but business as usual. And how are we going to move to business as usual, not only in the era of coronavirus, but also as we move out of it. And then Andy Goldstrom took a look at some compliance adaptations that he thinks are needed during uh, COVID-19. Over on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, I had a great week. Uh, That podcast, of course, is sponsored by uh, AMI. So uh, Monday, we looked at the board inquiring up and down. Tuesday, the board's role in internal controls. On Wednesday, the board as an internal control. 
on Thursday, board governance and risk oversight. And then uh, particularly, I think, applicable in light of uh, the McDonald's uh, fiasco with its now former CEO, what's the board's investigative protocol? So check all of that out at um, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program on the Compliance Podcast Network. So I'll give you a chance to catch your breath, Tom, because you just zipped through all those blogs. Um, I also wanted to point out that you did a great podcast this week with our good friend um, Ronnie Feldman at Learnings and Entertainment and talked about his ethics and compliance journey. So uh, I recommend you give that a listen when you can. And, Tom, we've got uh, Converge 20 coming up. What kind of things should we expect for their first all-virtual conference? So the Converge conference, as you correctly noted this year, Jay, has moved to a virtual conference. But the thing that's going to make this the most unique conference of the year, I believe, is that we're going to have the full engagement of the Converge community before, during, and then after the conference. So one of the things that I think makes Converge literally unique in the compliance conference world is the discussions, the sense of community, both before and in during the event and after the event. We're going to be able to replicate that with a great new platform that Converge is utilizing for the conference. So um, if you really want to elevate your game, this is the compliance conference for you. Uh, we're going to have a senior compliance professionals speaking uh, really with the most cutting-edge developments. Um, Stephen Martin and I are going to talk about uh, compliance function and the CCO of 2030 and where we're headed. So a lot of good stuff coming out. We're going to be uh, releasing more information on that. I'm going to be interviewing uh, the speakers for short uh, podcast snippets. So lots more coming. It's going to be a very exciting event. Uh, Did I mention the price, Jay? No. How much does it cost to go, Tom? It costs. It's free. So it's the only virtual event uh, that I think is a uh, virtual conference this year that's free. So check this out. Uh, we've got registration and information in the show notes. Uh, go ahead and sign up now. Uh, you will not regret it. Awesome. So uh, that brings us to the end of another look at this week in, episode, uh, this week in FCPA episode 218 for the week ending August 14th, the bags of cash edition. Uh, As we always say in the preamble, Tom and I are social distancing. We are in the middle of August, and uh, I know thoughts turn to kids going back to school. My daughters will be doing so on Monday, and uh, we are doing this in a very measured, staged way. They are starting off virtually, which I think is the right way to go. And I hope other parents out there who have child killer issues We'll be able to solve them as we start going into the fall uh, of this year. So on behalf of Tom Fox, not only the compliance evangelist, but also the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA. Please be safe, please be healthy, and we look forward to speaking with you next week. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics 
stories and commentary which caught our collective eye. If I could ask a favor, if you would rate this podcast on iTunes, as it would help us expand out our audience even more. This Weekend FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to visiting with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.